Hello and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 3, From Copper to Bronze. Today's topics are largely based around two main cultures which are important to the Celtic story. Two which are descended from the Yamnaya that we spoke of in the last episode. However, the formation and synthesis of these cultures is extremely complex in terms of the evidence. And after the discussions in the last episode, I'm slightly afraid that I'm alienating the audience from my original topic, which is the Celtic peoples. Today, I'm going to summarize the period, emphasize which aspects of these cultures had influence on Celtic culture, and introduce the idea of complex cultural fusion. We are going to refer back to our four pillars which we spoke about last time. The first culture we need to talk about is the corded wear phenomenon, which I'm sceptical to even call a culture based on the evidence. After extensive reading of the various pillars of the evidence, it's clear that this is an extremely complex story which is very difficult to unpack and even more difficult to explain with someone with no introduction to the topics. Effectively, what we're looking at is a cultural exchange. Yes, there was a large migration like there was into the Hungarian basin like we discussed last episode, but there was also an exchange of culture and people. Migration wasn't just one way during this period. They didn't just batter the way through these regions and completely culturally take them over. They adapted. They somewhat integrated. But genetically and linguistically, they certainly dominated the regions they arrived in. So, which regions did they arrive in? First of all, we see, just after 3000 BCE, a migration that takes over much of Central and Northern Europe. We see those distinctive Yungnaya burials with smaller, more modest mounds and what we call the single grave phenomenon. This phenomenon describes a single pit grave with a small mound with burial goods that are seen and influenced from other cultures. There are still clear signs of an emphasis on a patriarchal society which still sees weapons as a very important and key part of life. However, Many of the weapons in these corded ware graves do not originate from the steppe. We see a distinctive, intricate, very sharp stone axe which originates from Scandinavia. This is one of the first signs that the cultures that were present, the Neolithic farmers, were influencing the Yamnaya in both ways. We also see, as mentioned, corded ware patterns. These are large pots found in settlements and graves, which are patterned by cords while still wet. This is a new emphasis from the Yamnaya. The Yamnaya did not place a lot of emphasis on pottery. Pottery is seen largely with settled societies. They are very breakable and they don't lend themselves to the pastoral life of movement that we see back on the steppe. The shape and design of these pots also clearly are influenced by Neolithic societies that we see previously and contemporary with the Yamnaya. For example, the globular amphora culture in southern Poland, where the Yamnaya migrate into, clearly has similarities with corded ware pottery. So, how did this happen? A warlike pastoral people who, 
as we mentioned previously, place high demands on the land. We see massive amounts of burning in deforestation in Scandinavia, for example, which clearly indicates they still emphasize this pastoral lifestyle. We still, at times, see animals in these graves which indicate feasting and nomadic lifestyles as well as wagons. There are a number of ways in which the Indo-European Yamnaya clearly influenced the Neolithic peoples. Experts on Yamnaya, as Professor David Antony, posit that they clearly had a competitive advantage over the Neolithic peoples of Europe, which is why they were so able to culturally, linguistically and genetically dominate the landscape into which they migrated. Professor Alan Muntram also posits the fact that the use of horses may have been this competitive advantage, and this may have aided their ability to conquer the people. We do indeed see evidence of violence. Around the time that Yamnaya migrate into this area, we do see the presence of many mass graves. The people within the mass graves, usually part of the L2 haplogroup, which is the Y-chromosomal haplogroup of the Neolithic peoples, and the warlike and patriarchal society of Yamnaya and other steppe clans do heavily lend themselves to aggressive expansion and war. We mentioned last time how wagons aided the hit-and-run raids and larger-scale warfare that was becoming increasingly present on the continent at the time. However, it wasn't all violence. They weren't just adopting the material culture of the Neolithic peoples because they were stealing it or because they liked the look of it and thought they would try and imitate it. Many of the goods made in prehistory, and much of history generally, are made by the women of the household. Often, the material goods are a reflection of the culture of the women as well as the men. We see this in the genetic evidence and in the isotopic evidence. The isotopic evidence is the analysis of tooth enamel in ancient remains, something I've not mentioned yet. The analysis of tooth enamel, while imprecise, does provide archaeologists with a good understanding of whether a person was local or non-local, based on the isotopes found in their tooth enamel. The genetic evidence shows great movement of Neolithic women at the time, who were clearly breeding with the R1B haplogroup of the Indo-European Yamnaya. This could suggest marriage alliances and integration, increase kinship ties with the locals, and perhaps integrate the Neolithic societies into that hierarchical, patriarchal system that we see in steppe societies. This is an important point, as this patriarchal, hierarchical society is something that we will see continuously in Celtic society. But we should also not discount the possibility that these women did not go voluntarily. Sexual violence, unfortunately, is a huge part of history. And the further back you go, the more prevalent it seems to be. It is extremely important to me that we not forget the stories of the women involved here. Whether they were present as skillful influencers which managed to preserve their culture through marriage, or they were victims, their stories deserve to be told. Although Western Yamnaya 
did cultivate and consume grain. When we look at the isotopic evidence, it is clear that the Yamnaya relied on animal protein far more than settled farmer societies. And when we look at the tooth enamel present in settled farmer societies, we see much more evidence of grain and vegetable consumption. Another important point is that the further west we go, the more R1b Y chromosomal haplogroup we see, and the less we see of Yamnaya mitochondrial DNA. This could suggest raiding parties or bands of young ambitious warriors and second sons migrating for further opportunity. This was obviously a highly competitive time and a time of much change, which is why I'm not going into so much detail. There was a complex system of cultural exchange going on here, but the important point is that things that we take from the Yamnaya stay. The patriarchal society, the hierarchy, their language, and many of the religious and cultural themes that we see come down into the Celto-Italic language group. And, what we'll see later with Halstatt, barrow burials, these being small burial mounds. Before we move forward, I want to emphasize the attractiveness of the Yamnaya system. Strictly patriarchal, hierarchical society may not sound very appealing, but it does create a rigid social structure. And within a social structure, you can see structures for social advancement. There must have been something appealing about this culture for it to have spread so rapidly. It clearly was not just through warfare. And I want us to remember that fourth pillar. These were not robots or automatons. These were living, breathing people who loved their children, wanted to preserve their culture, and may have thought and seen the world entirely different than us, but were still human. Keep that in mind. Now, the title of this episode is From Copper to Bronze. It's a bit of an anachronism and a bit of a misnomer. I mentioned last time the Chaleolithic people. And what I meant by this was that they were a Copper Age people, but we don't call it the Copper Age. It's simply the introduction of copper tools amongst the already well-used stone tools of the Neolithic era. This is why we don't really call it the Copper Age very often. But from copper to bronze, we see a heavy emphasis on metal objects and what are known as prestige items. Now, prestige items or prestige goods are goods that do not have intrinsic value, but may convey status as a result of its context. For example, if you looked at an Anglo-Saxon or Viking grave and you found a sword clearly of Frankish origin in the early medieval period, this may convey status. Frankish swords were considered the best, and although it may be common to find them in the graves of Frankish lords in France and Germany, it may not be so common in Norway. And to bury such a valuable prestige item with a person shows us that this person was clearly very important and probably powerful. An example in the time that we're studying is we do see some Yamnaya and corded ware graves which have traditionally male burial goods in a female grave. Now, this could be early warrior women, but it also could be that this woman was considered so prestigious and powerful that they were considered equal to men. 
in status, which is not a given in a patriarchal society thousands of years ago. So bronze starts to appear around 2500 BCE, when our Yamnaya come in to Central Europe. And it is often said that they brought the Bronze Age to Europe. But the bell beakers, they were the real metal workers. The bell beakers is another archaeological pattern. It describes a specific type of burial, which is which is identified by a number of markers, including S-shaped beakers. Alongside this, there are stone padded wrist guards to protect the leading arm from the bowstring. You also find copper and gold metalworking. And these people brought the Bronze Age to the British Isles. The bell beakers first appear in southern Iberia, in a river valley in Portugal. It then appears, mainly concentrated throughout river valleys, along the Atlantic coast of Europe, up to the Dutch coast, where we see our first full bell beaker package. The bell beaker package describes a series of archaeological finds, which, taken together, give us a fuller picture of their culture. The bell beakers were not a people, or at least we don't think so. They are more a cultural package which was very popular during this time. Holland is also the first place where we see the pattern of bell beakers having that distinctive R1B haplogroup. That's right, the Yamnaya's steppe ancestry, which is roughly contemporary to the Yamnaya migration into central and northern Europe. If you look purely at dates and maps, you can see that there is a crossover of bell beaker and corded ware phenomena. And the bell beaker phenomena was most likely adopted by those westernmost males of Yamnaya migrants. But the bell beakers themselves do not represent an ethnographic change. If we return to southern Iberia, where the earliest bell beaker vessel finds are, we see little to no Ponto Caspian steppe ancestry. It is likely then that, as we earlier mentioned, the women were the ones who were carrying this culture around. They made the pots. They set that culture. And we do see Neolithic women marrying Ponto Caspian men. And when we look at the isotopic evidence of these women, it is clear that they moved, indicating that this society was patrilineal and patrilocal, as in the women moved to marry the men, not the men to the women. This is a practice known as female hexogamy. So what are the takeaways moving forward? Corded ware and bell beaker cultures are the prerequisite for the hierarchical societies which will define the European Bronze Age. In your mind, you should have a picture of cultures clashing, sometimes violently, sometimes through relationships, some complex, some simple, some near, some far. And as those societies become more sophisticated and hierarchical, their material culture follows and becomes complex and sophisticated along with their beliefs and views of the world. And a more strict view of individuals' place within that society.
From this develops prestige goods, which distinguish those noble or high-status families from those who are not, or perhaps religious and spiritual figures. This increases the importance of high-status goods such as those made from metals. We see high-status copper and gold goods transition into bronze goods, sometimes weapons, to signify the status of warrior chiefs. The synthesis of material culture and genes combined with the utter domination of Indo-European ideas of societal organization as well as language set the framework out which eventually emerges the Iron Age cultures the Romans would have recognized. Germans, Italians, and of course, Celts. We will continue with a series of these cultures, which will eventually lead us to Hallstatt and then finally Latin. We'll probably start this journey with the first proto-Celtic speakers such as Urnfield and Unitis culture. This is where we're really going to start to see recognizable traits, which we see and recognize to be Celtic traits, such as warrior chiefs, metal workers, and a lot of movement and migration of warrior bands raiding and settling their neighbors. But for now, Please reach me on social media for any comments or questions, and we will continue next time with war and treasure. I want to finish off this episode with a sincere apology for the lateness of this episode. I have marked the podcast now as irregular, as it doesn't quite fit in my schedule the way I hoped it would. But you know how January and February can be. Thank you all so much for your continued and increased support, and I'll see you next time on the Celtic History Podcast. <laughs>